This week we continue our series about life, what it means to have the gospel implanted in our heart and how that changes us. And today we look at three ways to live. We're so used to the irreligious and we're used to religion. And what's the third way that is so distinct to Christianity that is so different from every other religion? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, October 11th, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we just started in a brand new sermon series talking about life or life in the gospel, and we're talking about what does it mean that we have the gospel as you kind of function day in and day out, and it coincides with, of course, our new Grow Group series, and th- that's intentional. You know, we do things on purpose, so that's intentional, so that we can be discussing these things, like what does the gospel mean to me on a daily basis with other people. Now, I realize this is work, though. And to be in a grow group during this seven, eight-week period is extra work, and it's busy, and sometimes the last thing you're thinking when a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or whatever day rolls around is like, okay, I can't wait to hang out with other people. Sometimes you just want to sit on your couch, have like a date with your couch, and just, you know, let your mind shut off and watch TV. I think... Human beings function like this, though. So any of you who have gotten ready, someone just told me they, they just ran a half marathon. So when you run a half marathon, what is the worst thing that you can do for fitness? Do you know how this works? The worst thing you can do is do everything medium hard. That's what most human beings do when they're trying to get in shape. So we know enough that we can't like lift weights every single day because eventually you get tired. It comes just a lot faster when you're almost 40. So we know that that happens. So most people think, okay, I'm going to go run. Like to start getting in some exercise and stuff like that. And so they work medium hard all the time and they can't figure out why they plateaued. And this is what the people who do this say. Your intense workouts are probably not intense enough and your rest days are not enough rest. So it's all like medium hard. So this is going to apply in a second. So actually, if you want to, this is just practical advice. You're training for a half marathon. Make sure on your recovery days you're actually recovering. And if it says like interval training, you have to like go so hard that you feel sick. So that's the, and you're like, yeah, I don't think it's worth it. I'm good with walking it's from now on, right? I'll drive my half marathons. Uh, but I think life is the same way. And I'm guessing if you just kind of take an examination of your own life, would you say that your life has periods of like kind of intense, difficult times and then just like uh, rest and you're like, now I've recovered and now there's another difficult time? Or would you say your life feels medium hard all the time? And my guess is that if, if you're functioning like half of America, and by half I mean all of America, the, your life is kind of hard all the time, and you don't get these sense of like intense work, 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 and then, then a sense of relaxation. And that's how I look at this girl group. That my busiest time as a pastor is right now in the fall. And it's hard, you know, I've got to actually make sure I don't eat too much sugar and stuff because I get sick and things like that because it, it's, you know, it's draining. And, um, but it's also my most encouraging, it's also the most enjoyable, but I can't sustain this. If I sustain the pace I've got going right now, I would die, which is going to happen anyway, but I, mean, this, I would die sooner than I would. So I just can't do it. There has to be a time where it's like stress and then release. And the way I look at the Grow Group semester, I know it's work, but I think it's worth work worth investing in when you say, okay, here's a Wednesday. I want to invest in people. I want to invest in my own spiritual growth because God promises, right? Um, you've heard this before. My, so my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. And what God is saying is that when you spend time in his word, that's going to have an effect on you. After the semester, get a little bit of rest. I mean, physically, get a little bit of rest, be filled up in the Psalms, be refreshed at church. I think this is a healthy thing. So that's my um, two-minute commercial. 
Okay, so now we're moving on to talking about life, and uh, the section that we're going to be looking at eventually is going to be in Luke. But before we get there, we're going to talk about relationships. And what you, uh, when we talk about relationships, specifically with God the Father, so you're going to say, okay, I've, I've kind of heard, I know how this works. I'll swing back around, and I think it'll make sense in a bit. How's that for tricking you, right? Yeah, just pay attention for 22 more minutes, and it's going to make a ton of sense. So the... Our relationship with God is traditionally divided into two categories, right? So if you're going to have this relationship with God, if you just describe someone at work, I'm guessing you describe someone who is either religious or not religious, right? That's kind of how it works. This is pretty easy. So we'll start with category one, number one. Um, religious will we'll come to. You know someone at work that you would describe as religious, which just means they follow a faith and they're pretty dedicated, right? Are we all on the same page on this? Okay, good. And then non-religious, though, is becoming more and more common, if you didn't know that. So here's this possible survey. You know how long it took me to find a picture of this? And the people who study this, there's a guy's blog I read regularly. His name's James Emery White. If I'm really smart, I'm going to start using multiple names before. It'll be Jared J. Oldenburg or something, or J. Jacob Oldenburg, something like that. Um, right now, I just sign it Jared. So when he says, when people are starting to take these surveys... They are more and more often in the United States checking none. And so you probably discovered this if you just have conversations with your friends. You used to talk to them, and you'd say, like, oh, do you have any kind of church background, religious background? They would probably say, like, oh, my grandparents were Lutheran or my, you know, Catholic or something like that. More and more often, when you ask someone that you work with, do you have any religious preference or anything like that, they'll say, not really. So what that basically means is this. They don't necessarily believe in a God, but often they do. They just have no a religious affiliation. They just say, like, none. That's the box I'm going to check. They're called the nuns. How lame is that, right? That, right? <laughs> so this group of nuns, which is N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Um, so the, this group of nuns in the, the United States is starting to grow a little bit, not worldwide, but in the United States it's starting to grow. So this is the concern because this group is starting to grow. And essentially that person is saying what? They believe that they often recognize there's a God, but they're saying, I don't want to be affiliated with anybody else, and I am willing, based on my own merits and ideas, to face a holy maker and think that this is going to go okay. So I'm not going to worry about what this faith says or that faith. I think my own ideas are decent enough that I am willing to step forward and face my maker kind of on my own ideas and my own merits. This is terrifying to a person who's, quote, religious, right? If you understand Christianity, it bugs me when you see a thing like this, and it says Christian, including, you know, and they have this whole list, including Protestant. That drives me nuts because I never think it's specific enough. The surveys, they have like Hindu and Buddhist and nun and um, atheist, and then it just says like Protestant, this huge, or Christian, it's this huge big category. It drives me nuts because as a Lutheran, in the month of October, what do we celebrate? Reformation, thank you. I was thinking 90% of you are like breast cancer awareness. I was going to wear a pink tie just to throw you off, but I didn't. Um, right, so this is what we're thinking. This is, but, but the Reformation is the solas, which is saying, okay, not everybody understands that even when they read the Bible, the only way you get to God is not by what you do, but it's this grace that comes by God. It's God, through Christ, has come into this earth. God has paid for your sins. And God is the only way, by grace alone, only by his love and mercy, do you have this relationship. I think we do pretty well on a test. If I put this out, especially now since I told you the answer, um, you know, if I distributed this test and said, how do you have a relationship with God? You would say, God came to us. God made this possible only by grace. 
I think we'd do really well at it. And so that's why when I read surveys like this, it's, it's not quite specific enough. However, what does that mean functionally? And functionally, I, I'm going to ask you, this will not apply. This is going to be one of these sermons that not, not necessarily apply to everybody. Functionally, my question is, do you see yourself as like a self-driven person? Yes or no? So do you consider yourself a self-driven person? I'm going to have some a various tests to determine if you're a self-driven person or not. So a self-driven person has their own expectations that are higher generally than the expectations other people have for them. So if you have a job, you have your own expectations that are higher than the job's expectations. Like when you go in for your review, they're saying, you're doing well. And you, in fact, feel like you could do better. So maybe I'll make it more personal. You've been working out, and then you're looking in the mirror, and your spouse says, hey, you look good, and you go, eh. Right? So that would be an example. Or um, someone says, that was really fantastic. Uh, someone will say, for example, that was a great sermon. So I preached a funeral yesterday for Mike Hooks, and some people said, hey, I really appreciated your sermon. And what do I think of? What could have gone better in the sermon? What could have been smoother where I messed things up? So I'm, I would fit into, imagine that, the, self, the category of a self-driven person. That means you do not need outside forces to always be pushing on you. You have your own set of bars. That does not mean there's never outside influences. So I just read an article, so we have three stories. Just read an article um, about Zach Granke in the ESPN magazine. So it showed up in Pulse. They must be trying to get people to get subscriptions, and so it showed up in my feed. So I, I started to read that. Do you know Zach Granke? He's a pitcher. He used to be with the Brewers for one year. We bought him for a year. That's all we could afford. And then he left. But he was going to quit baseball. It's actually the Kansas City Royals who invested like a lot of time and money and effort. He was going to quit baseball done. They worked with him, and now he's the best pitcher in the majors right now. But the story was that he works with Clayton Kershaw, and between the two of these, like probably the best one-two duel, if you don't listen to sports, just we'll be done in a second. Probably one of the best two one-two duels as we roll into the playoffs for pitching, and they said they feed off each other. This bar just keeps getting higher and higher, but they're both self-driven people. They don't need to go to work this so and, and say, like, what do I got to do today? Okay, I'll reach the bar, and then I'm done. They are driven to be the best that they can possibly be. That's a self-driven person. Here's my other test. You're a self-driven person if the people that drive you nuts are, you feel are delusional. Because when they talk about their own abilities at something, they think it's awesome, and you're like, eh. You're, you're the boss, and then you do the review, and they're like, how do you think you're doing? Pretty good. And you're like, this is going to be a hard conversation. It's way easier when they say, like, you know, i got room to improve. It's way harder when they think they're doing great. So if, you, if that's the person that drives you nuts, um, you might be a self-driven person. You might be a self I feel like... <laughs> Who's that guy? Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, you might be a self-driven person if. Um, you might be a self-driven person if this story makes your skin crawl. So somebody is here. I talked to his brother. And his brother works in sports media. And he works at a college, sports media. There's three people that are in sports media at this college. It's not a huge Division One college. It's a Division One college. And he said, um, he was talking about how there's only three people in the office. You know, it's not a big office. But one person does nothing. So what does that mean for the other two people in the office? They have to pick up all the slack. So they, it, they got to a point where they were so frustrated, they went to the person above and said, we got a problem here. You know, XYZ is not doing anything at the office. You know what their solution was? That XYZ needs an intern to help him do nothing. <laughs> and does that make your skin crawl? Yes, it does. So now I'm going to get a little more specific in this congregation. So I will not be too specific. 
a person here came to me and they were really frustrated because they have a job, they're working in a group, and the other person in the group does nothing, it feels like, and management doesn't seem to care. Now I'm going to be a little more specific. Should I tell you who told me that? You. I'm serious. Like, again and again and again. It's not necessarily you, but I mean, this conversation as a pastor comes up so often that someone says, I'm so frustrated. It comes already when my kids come to me. Dad, we're in a group for school, and Holly and I want to get an A. This person does nothing. Who's got to pick up the slack? How many of you are in a situation where you at work could look around and go, that person does nothing. I used to eat, it starts already making waffle cones when I worked at the custard stand. You know, custard, because you can't tell what state I'm from if it says custard. So this, I worked at the custard stand at Mary's in, Was- in uh, Washington, there, Wisconsin, and Tracy Coonan, no, you, know, you can Google her name, she would literally sit on the counter while I made all the waffle cones. Like, there's more than one maker. It doesn't seem that difficult to, like, just, I'd be like, hey, you want to help out? Oh, yeah, sure. She'd make like one waffle cone, and then she'd hop back on the counter and just tell me about her life and her boyfriend. And one time, I told her about her before because after two years of working with her, I said, do you know anything about me? And she goes, I knew her boyfriend. I knew every, every conceivable thing. She had no idea even like I was, I don't even know she knew my name. Just, I was just, she's like, there's this guy who just makes waffles. <laughs> so every one of us has been in a situation like this. That might mean you're a self-driven person. And there's a story about a self-driven person that we read about in Scripture. Uh, Francis Lind, I, I got, uh, Lists, I can't even pronounce that. It's Hungarian, and it had the Hungarian pronunciation. Um, L-I-S-Z-T. And have you ever heard this before? Miss one day of practice, I notice. Miss two, critics notice. Miss three, the audience notice. Do you think he's a self-driven person? His expectations, this would be my own definition, you don't need outside influences because your own expectations, your own for yourself, are higher than other people's expectations for you. That's where that fits. He's saying, it does, I'm not doing this just for the audience or the critics. For myself, I have to practice every single day because I have this own expectation. And we're going to read about a person. Uh, Jesus continued. This was our gospel. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And you know what this means, right? We've, we've looked at this before. He's saying to his father, okay, dad, can we talk? I wish you were dead. Um, actually, you could stay alive if you want, but can I at least have the stuff you were going to give me if you die? This could work out for both of us, dad. I don't have to kill you, and I can have the stuff. How does this work? So this is what happened. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off to a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one, make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and his father humiliates himself. That's the father. He runs out to him, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around it, and kissed him. And the son stumbles through this apology. But what happens? The father jumps in and says, "Uh, quick, bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, kill the fattened calf, because my son has come back. I think this story, as a kid, resonated a lot with me. I'm not saying I had a dis. My dad is here. We don't have any problems. But it resonated not because there's this beauty, right? That, that there's this relationship that is broken and it is lost. And I think this resonates across the board for a whole lot of people, because they can think of a relationship that has been broken, that somehow, somehow through all these things gets mended. You see that um, I don't even think it's a true story, but there's a story in it was a Latino country. But the person put up a billboard apparently that said, um, "Jose, I am sorry." meet me here, and he wrote a date, Dad. I don't know if it's true, but the story says that there were hundreds of Jose's that showed up because they longed to have this relationship, hoping that, you know, this, things are going to be right with their dad. And you can excel. I've showed you, this one's actually true, a, a greeting card company. I used it on Mother's Day. They, they had the experiment where they had Mother's Day cards and the prison, and they ran out of Mother's Day cards because all the prisoners wrote them to their... Then they said, hey, this is great. You know, that's in May. In June, let's do it with Father's Day cards. So they put them out, and not a single prisoner came to send their dad a Father's Day card. That says that this is something that resonates. So now, just think in movies, they play off this. You know, it's not only is it true in the Bible, but it's also true in movies. Um, Star Trek, the, next, the newest ones, Captain Kirk, you know, the rebel, he has a... Re- issues with his dad, right? He's got, and he rebels, and he's, this relationship is tense, and they're trying to figure that out. I'll pull out another baseball movie. Before that, I'll do, I'll do one more. Uh, Indiana Jones? Anyone okay, Indiana Jones, and then we have Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is really great. Um, disappointing when you're a kid, because it's not the real Noah's Ark, but di- Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then Temple of Doom. Yeah. Then Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the whole like, thread that goes through the movie is that there's this estrangement between Sean Connery and Harrison Ford, and there's some really good lines in there. Like, usually they're fighting the Nazis or they're riding on one of these motorbikes, and then they're having this shouting conversation. One of my favorite lines is, um, Indiana's like, you, you never talked to me, and, and Sean Connery says, well, you left right when you were getting interesting. <laughs> so I thought, I thought that's funny. Um, but... They're also fighting the Nazis like on the bike and they're saying like, you don't understand, you know, mom, we never understood because you were chasing this holy grail so hard because this, you wanted to get that. And then he said, your mother did understand. So saying, there's this estrangement and then where they come together. Maybe a different movie that I think hit Holmes a little bit more is the opening scene of, you have 25 years to have seen this up to this point, so it's spoiler alert. Has anyone seen Field of Dreams? Okay, so Ray, at the opening scene is kind of this fight. Uh, he's retelling about how he... Um, had discord with his father because he called Shoeless Joe Jackson, his idol of the Black Sox, uh, like a criminal. And so they have the, this criminal, and his dad wants to play catch with him, and he says, no way, because he, he's just appalled that his dad likes this criminal. And then, of course, this voice starts coming, like, if you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. Escalates all the way through the movie to this kind of emotional moment. If you could see, that's Sean Connery's dad, uh, John, as a young man, coming off the field, and this is Sean Connery. Not Con- it is not Sean Connery, it's uh, Kevin, Kevin Costner. I'm not getting Bible things wrong, just movie things wrong. So, all right, so they have this, and then at the end, it's, I was going to play the video, but it's kind of an emotional thing because, you know, they, they, they're talking, and they're kind of getting to a point, and, and sh- uh, Kevin says to his dad, Ray says to his dad, hey, dad, do you want to have a catch? 
And his dad said, I'd like that. And I bet there's a lot of, there's a lot of grown men who think about the, the strange men and maybe their dad is no longer alive where tears start going down, right? That is the beauty of the story of the prodigal son, right? And you can think of it. I thought as a kid what, how beautiful it is when someone has strayed away from the church, has strayed away from their faith, and then to come back, these loving arms of God who says, I, I am here for you, someone who's gone wayward, and that they are received by the church. They're received by God in love and mercy. And God doesn't say, like, you get one strike with me and you're out. Isn't that a beautiful story? But when I said the story is about a self-driven person, that's not the person I'm talking about. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The brother has come, he replied, and the father has killed the fattened calf because he has asked, he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving away for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered this property with prostitutes and come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father, says, you're always with me and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and he is found. In my adult life, besides the scriptures, one book that has um, been as transformational as possible, it, a little tiny book. Has anyone read The Prodigal God? And it was transformable. I probably gave it to some of you. Um, you read the story as a kid, and I always thought it was beautiful because I could think of someone who had all this sin. Traditionally, we look at sin like sin is uh, the, thing, the bad things you do versus the situation of this older brother. And I think that's what really hit home. Because when I looked at my own life as a human being, I think, I, and I think you could too, you could answer the question really well and say like, okay, it's only by grace that I'm saved. It's only by what Christ has done. It's only by God's mercy. But really deep down, as a self-driven person who interacts with human beings, who interacts with people in your family, do you look at people that way or do you think, if I just do enough, I'm going to have this relationship? If I just meet my own expectations, then it's going to work. If I just do a little bit more. And when I read that book, they said there's two sins that are going on here. There's two reasons people are kept out of the feast. One is the one son ran away and did all these sins. And I think, okay, thank God I wasn't that son, right? But then I realized that this parable is for two people. And one is the one and he could just be saying as easily, but God, I have always gone to church but God, I have read my scriptures, but God, I have doing the right things and the moral things, why aren't you, and you never gave me anything. And for me, that hit home because I think deep down at a real deep level, I wondered, is I the son not that's kept out of the feast because of uh, doing the wrong things and loving bad things, but is, is there, at a real deep level, am I trying to manipulate God? Because they both want God's stuff, right? They both want their dad's stuff. They both, the dad still goes out to both of them. The dad does all these things. They both ultimately wanted dad's stuff. One just tried to get it by stealing it and running away, and the other one tried to get it by doing all the right things. And I think that's what really hit home. And when you really talk about a relationship with God, I think there's more than two options, right? It's not just being irreligious and saying, God, I don't care. 
and it's not trying to convince God by moral obligation, there's a middle way. And the middle way is grace. And the middle way says even at your deepest level as a self-driven person, you have to recognize my sin, your sin, might not just be doing all these bad things that people are so appalled by. My sin might be I'm trying to manipulate my God by the things that I do do. And for that, we laid down on our hands and knees. And God says there's a different way that says his dad comes out to him and humiliates himself. And he says, son, I long, why can't we celebrate? My son, I want you to have a relationship with me. It's not about what you do. You have always, you're not getting a relationship with God by coming to church and doing the nice things. God's not up there with a clipboard. God has said, everything I've had through Christ has always been yours. That's when we see the real older brother, right? The brother who, uh, who, naked on the cross, gives us a robe of righteousness. The brother who is cast out of God's kingdom so that we could be brought in. The one who paid the price to bring us close to him. There's a third way. And it's not just trying to get attention by being naughty like a little kid. And it's not trying to get attention by doing all the right things. It's saying, God, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Bathe me in grace and mercy and help me recognize this deep down. Root that out so I can fully trust and fully know you. And I can live with a walk of grace that says, God, your mercy has laid out on me. That is what it means, a third way to be a Christian. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, many of us are self-driven, and people can drive us nuts sometimes, and sometimes we look at our own level, and we try and convince you just by what we do that it's enough. Help us shed that immediately. As we think somehow we're going to convince you to do things by our own moral goodness or our own moral superiority, root that out of our heart and help us look deep of our own sins and recognize and confess those to you and so that we have a relationship built not on what we do but just solely on what Christ has done. Bring us now to confess these things to you and to walk now in faith and help celebrate every single person that you have brought into your fold. Don't help us be bitter and angry but instead like the older brother, um, look at the feast as you have brought people in who have struggled with sin. You also bring people just like us who have struggled with our own moral superiority Put these things together so that we can build a community that builds each other up. And it's a community not built on us and our personalities and our own standards, but instead a community built on you. Amen.